You're tuned to PRN. We'll keep bringing you the best in alternative voices for social and political news, the environment, health, the economy, and a whole lot more. All you have to do is keep listening. PRN, the Progressive Radio Network. In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic All right, folks, welcome back. Meditations and Molotovs, I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us here every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So according to social media today, I promised folks that we would talk about the Khan family, recently made famous during their performance at the DNC in Philadelphia. For those who aren't aware, this is a Muslim-American family whose son was a captain in the military and whose son was also killed in Iraq. We're going to talk about Muslim-Americans, Muslim, and veteran identities, particularly within the context of the war on terror. We will also be talking about lesser evil voting, Jill Stein and the Green Party, a Green Party that on many levels simply doesn't exist. And I say this as someone who has spent the last 10 years of my life organizing on the left and working with organizers and leftists. We'll also be talking about lead poisoning in East Chicago, Indiana, uprisings in Naples, Italy, and the world's disappearing water aquifers. We're not going to go in the order that I just mentioned, though, because that would be unlike the program to do it that way. So let's start with, well, let's start with an article I actually found today from the New York Times. Alicia Palapiano and Adam Pierce wrote this article. It's called Only 9% of America Chose Trump and Clinton as their nominee. And this is something that I mentioned last year, and I think it's a really important uh, set of facts to continually mention to people when they ask about the election, when we're talking about how many Americans support particular candidates. So, you know, tomorrow I have to do a radio interview in the morning with a radio station in Australia, and they want to talk to me about the U.S. elections and so on. In part, I'm sure what I'm going to get asked is about the amount of people who actually support Trump or Clinton. So the the charge from my friend's living in Latin America, Australia, Europe, so on, is you dumbass Americans continue to pick these terrible candidates that then run the American empire and that then help destroy the global economy, help destroy the environment, help destroy people's lives around the world with their wars and their drone strikes and their economic collapses and Ponzi schemes and so on. Okay, on one level, I can understand. People are upset. My friends overseas are upset. They want more from us. And that's understandable. But we have to remember, so according to this article, 
The United States is home to 324 million people. 103 of the 103 million of them are children, non-citizens or ineligible felons and they do not have a right to vote. So let's let's back up and say that one more time. The United States is home to 324 million people. Between children, non-citizens or ineligible felons that do not have the right to vote, 103 million out of those two, 324 million, so almost a third of our population, simply can't vote. Another 88 million eligible adults do not vote at all, even in general elections. So about 90 million people simply don't vote. They won't vote in the primaries, and they won't vote in the general election. An additional 73 million people did not vote in the primaries this year, but will most likely cast a vote in the general election. So let me say that again. 324 million people in the United States, about a third, so a little less than a third, 103 million of them are either children, non-citizens, or ineligible felons who cannot vote. So that's about a third. Out of the remaining two-thirds, so out of the remaining, say, 220 million people, 88 million of them don't vote at all in primaries or general elections. 73 million will vote in the primaries. I'm sorry, who won't vote in the primaries, but will vote in the general election. And the remaining 60 million people, these are the 60 million people who are, let's say, even quasi into politics. So out of the 60 million people, I'm sorry, out of the 324 million people that live in the United States, 60 million of them actually vote in the primaries and the general election. About 30 million vote for Republicans, and about 30 million people vote for Democrats. But half of the primary voters chose other candidates. Just 14% of eligible adults or 9% of the whole nation voted for either Mr. Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Let me say that again. Half of the primary voters out of the 60 million, 30 million on the Democratic side and about 30 million on the Republican side, half of those primary voters wanted other, a candidate other than Clinton or Trump. And just 14% of eligible adults and 9% of the entire nation has voted for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And that's something we have to keep in mind. And this is something I will constantly remind my friends overseas. You know, many of them are going to ask, why don't, you know, this is interesting. And I don't know if there's studies out there. If there are studies, people should send them to me. You can find my email pretty easily online. I leave it at the end or at the, yeah, I believe at the end of my bio on almost all of the articles that I write. So you can find my email online. Send me studies or surveys or polling data of the 88 million eligible adults who do not vote at all, even in general elections. This group of people I'm actually very interested to learn about. I'm interested to learn about the demographics, number one, who makes up this group of 88 million 
eligible adults who don't vote at all. Because that group is bigger than the 73 million who don't vote in primaries but will vote in the general election. And it's also bigger than the 60 million people who vote in the primaries and the general election. So it's almost about a third each, a little less each, but we'll just, for the sake of our, for the sake of conversation here, a third of the population can't vote. And then the remaining two thirds. Yeah, it's a, it, this is interesting to me. That it, so 88 million is the bigger group out of the three groups that are left. 73 million who don't vote in the primaries and vote in the general election. And the 60 million people who vote in primaries. <clears throat> I wonder out of those 88 million people how many simply don't trust the system for good reason. How many are apathetic and could give a shit less about what happens how many would be inclined to participate if they felt like their voices could be heard? You know, those, those things interest me. They should interest you if you're interested in organizing people or if you're politically active and looking to mobilize people. The 73 million who don't vote in the primaries but vote in the general election... That's a little silly to me. I mean, if you're going to participate in the general election, then at least, at the very least, you should participate enough to determine who could potentially be on the ticket in the general election. Though after this year, it's going to be hard to convince people to participate in the primary process when the primary process, as WikiLeaks has shown and numerous emails and commentators have already you know, the, as WikiLeaks has shown with the leaked emails, but then as, you know, commentators and analysts and so on have been commenting on in the recent uh, week. It's going to be very difficult to get people to participate in the process or in these processes if they think or if they know that those processes are inherently corrupt and undemocratic. I mean, you should know that anyway. This is this is part of the naivety of the American population that we have to get we have to get beyond. People should know that anyway. If you didn't know prior to those emails being leaked that the DNC, the New York Times, MSNBC, the Washington Post and all of these other outlets were already throwing the election for Hillary Clinton or if you didn't notice by the commentary and the op-eds then I'm sorry, but in my opinion, you're pretty ignorant to begin with. You, you know, these are things that we have to understand as activists, as citizens, as human beings. It's your job, it's our job to constantly be critical. It's not our job to listen to what people on TV or writers in newspapers and magazines or radio commentators and journalists have to say it's our job to take that information process it critique it check it come up with our own ideas and come back to the table with a decent not only understanding of what's happening but an idea of what you'd like to see happen 
that's something I, I think this is something we should think about when we think about organizing people in the future following this election cycle. Some groups, like my friend Roberto and Byron in the 25th Ward in Chicago, in the Pilsen neighborhood, have already started the 25th Ward IPO, Independent Political Organization, and I think that's a model that on a local level, people in urban environments could replicate with some success. So moving on to lesser evil voting, I think, I don't know what his name is, John Hall, John Hale, and Noam Chomsky released an article called An Eight-Point Brief for Lesser Evil Voting. Preamble. Among the elements of the weak form of democracy enshrined in the Constitution, presidential elections continued to pose a dilemma for the left in that any form of participation or non-participation appears to impose a significant cost on our capacity to develop a serious opposition to the corporate agenda served by establishment politicians. The position outlined below is that which many regard as the most effective response to the quadrennial Hobson's choice, namely the so-called lesser evil voting strategy, or LEV. Simply put, LEV, or what I'll refer to as LEV, involves where you can, i.e. in safe states, voting for the losing third-party candidate you prefer or not voting at all. In competitive swing states, where you must, one votes for the lesser evil Democrat. Before fielding objections, it will be useful to make certain background stipulations with respect to the points below. The first is to note that since changes in the relevant facts require changes in tactics, proposals having to do with our relationship to the electoral extravaganza should be regarded as provisional. This is most relevant with, respo- with respect to point three, which some will challenge by citing the claim that Clinton's foreign policy could pose a more serious menace than that of Trump. In any case, while conceding as an outside possibility that Trump's foreign policy is preferable, most of us not already convinced that this is, that this is so will need more evidence than can be aired in a discussion involving this statement. Furthermore, insofar as this is the fact of the matter, following the logic through seems to require a vote for Trump, though it's a bit hard to know whether those making the suggestion are intending it seriously. Another point of disagreement is not factual, but involves the ethical moral principle addressed in point number one, sometimes referred to as the politics of moral witness. Generally associated with the religious left, secular leftists implicitly invoke it when they reject lesser evil voting on the grounds that a lesser of two evils is still evil. Leaving aside the obvious rejoinder that this is exactly the point of lesser evil voting, i.e. to do less evil, what needs to be challenged is the assumption that voting should be seen as a form of individual self-expression rather than an act to be judged on its likely consequences, specifically those outlined in point number four. The basic moral principle at stake is simple. Not only must we take responsibility for our actions, 
but the consequences of our actions for others are a far more important consideration than feeling good about ourselves. And while some would suggest extending the, the critique by noting that the politics of moral witness can become indistinguishable from narcissistic self-aggrandizement, this is substantially more harsh than what was intended and harsher than what is merited. That said, those reflexively denouncing advocates of lesser evil voting as a supposed moral basis should consider that their footing on the high ground may not be as secure as they take for granted to be in this case. A third criticism of lesser evil voting equates it with a passive acquiescence to the bipartisan status quo under the guise of pragmatism, usually driving from those who have lost the appetite for radical change. It is surely the case that some of those endorsing lesser evil voting are doing so in bad faith cynical function functionaries whose objective is to promote capitulation to a system which they are invested in protecting. Others supporting lesser evil voting, however, can hardly be reason reasonably accused of having made their peace with the establishment. Their concern, as alluded to in point six and seven, inheres in the awareness that frivolous and poorly considered electoral decisions impose a cost. Their memories extending to the ultra-left faction of the peace movement, having minimized the comparative damages of the Nixon presidency during the 1968 elections. The result was six years of senseless death and destruction in Southeast Asia, and also a predictable fracture of the left setting it up for an ultimate collapse during the backlash decades to follow. The broader lesson to be drawn is not to shy away from confronting the dominance of the political system under the management of the two parties. Rather, challenges to it need to be issued with a full awareness of their possible consequences. This includes the recognition that far-right victories not only impose terrible suffering on the most vulnerable segments of society, but also function as a powerful weapon in the hands of the establishment center, which, now in opposition, can posture as the reasonable alternative. A Trump presidency, should it materialize, will undermine the movement centered around the Sanders campaign, particularly if it is perceived as having minimized the dangers posed by the far right. A more general conclusion to be derived from this recognition is that this sort of cost-benefit strategic accounting is fundamental to any politics which is serious about radical change. Those on the left who ignore it or dismiss it as irrelevant are engaging in political fantasy and are an obstacle to, rather than an ally of, the movement which, is, which now seems to be materializing. Finally, it should be understood that the reigning doctrinal system recognizes the role presidential elections perform in diverting the left from actions which have the potential to be effective in advancing its agenda. These include developing organizations committed to extra-political means, most notably street protests, but also competing for office in potentially winnable races. The left should devote the minimum of time necessary to exercise the lesser of evil voting's choice, then immediately return to pursuing goals which are not timed to the national electoral cycle. With that being said, here is the eight-point lesser evil voting briefing that Chomsky and Hale offer. Point number one, 
voting should not be viewed as a form of personal self-expression or moral judgment directed in retaliation towards major party candidates who fail to reflect our values or of a corrupt system designed to limit choices to those acceptable to corporate elites. Number two, the exclusive consequence of the act of voting in 2016 will be, if in a contested swing state, to marginally increase or decrease the chances of one of the major party candidates winning. One of these candidates, Trump, denies the existence of global warming, calls for the increased use of fossil fuels, dismantling of environmental regulations, and refuses, refuses assistance to India and other developing nations as called for in the Paris Agreement, the combination of which could, in four years, take us to a catastrophic tipping point. Trump has also pledged to deport 11 million Mexican immigrants, offered to provide for the defense of supporters who have assaulted African-American protesters at his rallies, stated his openness to using nuclear weapons, supports a ban on Muslims entering the U.S., and regards the police in this country as absolutely mistreated and misunderstood, while having done an absolutely unbelievable job of keeping law and order. Trump has also pledged to increase military spending while cutting taxes on the rich, hence shredding what remains of the social welfare safety net, despite pretenses. Point number four, the suffering which these and other similarly extremist policies and attitudes will impose on marginalized and already oppressed populations has a high probability of being significantly greater than that which will result from a Clinton presidency. Point five is that point four should constitute sufficient basis for, to voting for Clinton where a vote is potentially consequential, namely in a contested swing state. Number six, however, the left should also recognize that should Trump win based on its failure to support Clinton, it will repeatedly face the, acquisition, the accusation based, in fact, that it lacks concern for those sure to be most victimized by a Trump administration. Number seven, Often this charge will emanate from establishment operatives who will use it in a bad faith justification for defeating challenges to corporate hegemony, either in the Democratic Party or outside of it. They will ensure that it will be widely circulated in mainstream media channels with the result that many of those who would otherwise be sympathetic to a left challenge will find it convincing reason to maintain their ties with the political establishment rather than breaking with it as they must. Point number eight, the conclusion, by dismissing a lesser evil voting electoral logic and thereby increasing the potential for Clinton's defeat, the left will undermine what should be at the core of what it claims to be attempting to achieve. And again, as I've pointed out a million times in the past and as I talked about a lot last, um, during last week's program, we have to we have to stop with this this is this is a big reason why no one pays attention to the left so i watched an interview with the socialist city councilman from seattle sawant and another woman i am forgetting her name and she's a writer for the new yorker or for new york magazine i can't remember which nonetheless a good debate, you know. There wasn't really much to debate, and the debate was the the debate was essentially who are you going to vote for? And again, 
this is one of the least important things you're going to do. It's going to take five minutes of your day. You're going to go in, you're going to cast your vote, and that's it. It becomes important, of course, if you live in a swing state. It becomes very important. And again, for people who pay attention, so for people who are engaged, for those 60 million Americans who are voting in the primaries and voting in the general election, and for the other 70-something million that will show up in the general election but who haven't participated in the primaries, those people who will show up and vote, 95% of whom, maybe, I don't know, maybe this election will be 90%, let's say 90 to 95% of whom, absolutely agree that there's a difference between Trump and Clinton. Absolutely agree. And for people who are interested in organizing, and as, again, as was mentioned in the article and as I will mention, I mean, my friends who are like Roberto and Byron who live in a predominantly Latino ward in Chicago, those communities are very clear. So we talk about this identity politics that people play. But there's also a reality in listening to people who are come from different communities, and particularly if you're a white person living in the suburbs, which is where most of Jill Stein's supporters live, which is where a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters live, and none of this is a coincidence, by the way, major racial and class divisions on the left and within progressive, so-called progressive or liberal circles, the vast majority of people in black and brown communities are going to vote for Clinton. And they're going to vote for Clinton because they understand, unlike our extremely privileged friends who live in the suburbs, that a vote for Donald Trump is absolutely catastrophic. And as I mentioned last week, It's not much different than someone asking me to vote for a Democrat for governor or a Democrat for state senator or a Democrat for U.S. senator. There's, you can't find me a Democrat in the state of Indiana that I think has interesting politics. But I'm more than willing to vote for the Democrats. Why? Because I'm not insane. I'm not only not insane, but I'm also uh, interested in building more radical movements in the future. And I don't think more radical movements are going to come when we're constantly reacting to Trump and Pence's neo-fascist, neo-fascist, sort of Christo-fascist policies with the religious right and fringe nuts running the show and in very powerful and influential positions in society. It's not going to happen. I, and, you know, I think we don't have to look back far to talk about this. Again, I've, I've mentioned in the past, I think the more interesting movements have taken place under Obama and the Democrats. You look at the movements that took place under Johnson, I think they're more interesting than the movements that are happening under Nixon. If you look at the movements that were happening under Carter, I think they're more interesting than the social movements and political movements that were taking place under Reagan. And you can go down the list. I think what happened under the Clinton administration, you know, culminating in the battle for Seattle at the end of the decade, the WTO protests and so on to me, was much more interesting than anything that happened under H.W.'s years. And when I became involved with politics and 
social movements and so on. It was under the Bush years. And I don't, you know, looking back, I don't think a lot of those, I, I don't think a lot of what we were doing back then was particularly interesting. Was In many ways, we were the reactionaries, uh, reacting to reactionaries. That's what it seemed like. I think a lot of people would agree with me. There's a lot of people in the street, but they were they were primarily anti-Bush supporters. That's primarily what they did. I mean, they weren't really, you know, these weren't principled activists. These weren't principled activists who were like, you know, hey, we're going to oppose war no matter what. Uh, we're going to, um, regardless of who's in office, you know, we're going to stand up for human rights. We're going to oppose torture. We're going to oppose surveillance and spying. If if the hundreds of thousands and millions of people who are in the street under the Bush years were in any way, shape, or form principled about their politics, they would have been vocal and visible over the last eight years. But they haven't been. They've been MIA. And that, again, is why people don't pay attention to a lot of the left and progressives and liberals and so on. When Trump gets in office, or I'm sorry, well, if or when Trump gets into office, there will be more people and more, more people mobilized and more people in the street than anyone has seen in a generation and potentially even more than was in the, than, than were in the streets, say, during the 60s, early 70s. I promise you that. That's going to happen. But that doesn't mean that those movements will automatically be coming up with really serious and vibrant alternatives to the status quo. Trump and Pence will be doing, like Bush and Cheney, something completely off the rails every week. We'll be responding to it. Instead of, say, under the, under the Obama years, which a lot of people, you know, in, in my opinion, I think, um, you know, have had, a, I think, a really successful time organizing in some ways. And some of the more interesting social movements have popped up during that time. You know, Black Lives Matter, the union movement, in a lot of ways, particularly the rank and file movement, even the Bernie Sanders campaign, I think can be attributed to the to this particular neoliberal context. The Occupy movement, I mean, we can keep going down the list. There's a lot of, to me, way more interesting things that have happened in the last eight years than happened under Bush. Under Bush, massive mobilizations, sure. But what did that culminate in? That culminated in the 2006 Democrats taking the House and the Senate. And then refusing to defund the war. And unfortunately, I think that's what will happen if Trump gets into office. So my suggestion would be that Trump gets into office. My prediction would be that if, if or when Trump gets into office, you'll see four years of massive mobilizations and protests if he's not, not impeached before then for doing something crazy. And then you'll see the Democrats because they have the party's infrastructure, because they have now, and, and this is where I think there's a legitimate critique of the Bernie Sanders campaign, where Bernie Sanders will bring millions and millions of people under the Democratic tent, and as much as they're upset and discontented now, 
if there's not an effective left, if there's not a left wing that has a viable alternative for them, and that's not the Green Party, I can promise you that, they will either go home and they'll stop being politically active or they will fall under the tent of the Democratic Party. That's without question. So this is why, of course, it's so important for the left to actually be organized and to have its shit together. And having these goofy arguments about Trump and Clinton and how it doesn't matter and so on and, um, you know, telling people to vote for Jill Stein. And, And I think people have to understand, too, at least be honest with people. If you're going to tell people to vote for Jill Stein, then at least be honest with them and tell them that if no one gets the required 270 electoral votes to win, that the House of Representatives will choose the president. And we all know who controls the House of Representatives. So let's, you know, at least be honest. At least be honest and upfront with people if you're going to make these bogus arguments. Because let's say Jill Stein did have enough support to start gaining. There's no proof to show that, of course, number one. Number two, there is no movement on the horizon to push her over the top. And number three, the Libertarian candidate actually has much more support than Jill Stein has. Libertarian Party, Libertarian politics have always been much more organized and stronger in the United States and well fund, more well-funded than the left. And that shows year in and year out when Libertarian candidates actually garner decent percentages of the vote while left-wing parties uh, barely scratch the surface. You can barely register. Okay, so does that mean that we should be completely discouraged and so on? No, it's just to recognize this is what will happen because it's happened before and it will happen again. And I think people have to at least be honest with those that they're, they're encouraging to vote for the Green Party. Now, would it be nice if the Green Party garnered a decent percentage of the votes in states that didn't matter? I, agree. I think it would. I think it would be great to have these different parties involved in the debates. They should be on every single ballot in every single state. Undoubtedly. No one's arguing differently there. I simply don't know what people think they're going to achieve by voting for Stein and swing states or by encouraging people to not vote for Clinton. And I can't see much objectionable about what Chomsky and Hale have to say. Logically, I I don't see how you can argue otherwise. But anyway, enough with that. Enough with that. Because at the end of the day, again, here's the most important point, folks. The, here's the most important point of what I'm saying today. We have more important work to do. We have much more important work to do to build upon the previous social movements that have been out there, activists, organizers who've been in the streets struggling, the people who have been organizing with the Bernie Sanders campaign. We have to build upon the fact that millions of people in the United States showed up to vote for a democratic socialist. We have to build on that. I think the only way to do that is to treat each other with some respect. So as someone who's encouraging people to vote for Clinton in swing states, 
And though I don't live in a swing state, so it's easy for me to just show up and write in Jill Stein or not vote for the president or whatever. In other states, I think it's important. Nonetheless, I'm not going to really attack anyone unless people start speaking like goofballs. I mean, when someone comes up to me and they tell me you're a sellout or you're this or you're that, well, I then not only number one, not only is no one going to listen to you, and number two, no one should listen to you, and number three, you open yourself up to many attacks. This isn't an indictment on someone's character, whether or not they vote for Clinton or Stein or whatever. This is a matter of tactics. People need to take all of these emotions out of this politics. And this is a big, this is one of the biggest problems I've seen in the last 10 years. I remember when I was 22 and I first got involved and started doing anti-war work. Of course, people were emotional, but people were overly emotional. And those sort of hyper emotions dictated, I think, in very unproductive ways what we did as a movement and as organizations and campaigns and so on. And we let those emotions take over. And you can see it now with the Bernie supporters. I mean, this is absurd. I mean, the fact that millions of people in this country or at least hundreds of thousands of people who supported Bernie Sanders actually thought that this guy had a shot three months ago, four months ago. I mean, I can see up until March, I could see but, you know, this worries me beyond the election. This worries me about human psychology. This worries me about individuals and so-called leaders and parties and uh, groupthink is sort of this herd mentality that people have. And the way it expresses itself is, is in, in my thinking, very, very toxic. So... In other words, people could have went into the Democratic National Convention knowing that Bernie Sanders what didn't have a shot. I mean, for Christ's sakes, you have to be a fucking nut to think that Bernie Sanders had a shot going into this convention. If by the time the Democratic National Convention started, you still thought that Bernie Sanders had a shot at the nomination, you are completely off your rocker, and I suggest either spending less time on TV, the Internet, social media, whatever, and more time thinking, reflecting, talking with actual people like your neighbors and the people who live across the street, the people you work with, whatever, and understand that not only are you living in a bubble, but you're living in a, in a sort of irrational bubble. And that can be dangerous, and it's not productive for the movement. It's not productive for organizations that are trying to build. It's not productive for ongoing campaigns. It's just not. So please stop. Please, I mean, I'm begging you as someone who's genuinely interested in people getting their shit together enough to actually out-organize the centrist neoliberals and to out-organize the extreme right, both of whom are winning. Please, stop with the ideological purity. Stop with the ideological madness, this moralizing of everything. Like who you vote for tells me what kind of person you are. No. It doesn't at all. So stop. All right. So that's it on the Green Party, the DNC. We won't talk about any more of that stuff. Who knows? We probably won't talk about it for the next couple of months because it's it's already become so boring. But what I what what I did want to talk about today is this Khan family. As I said, recently made famous during their performance at the DNC in Philadelphia, talking about their son, who was a so-called hero. Let's get something straight right now. If you 
went and fought after 9-11 in Iraq or Afghanistan, you are not a hero. You are not a hero. You were used by the United States government to pursue geopolitical economic interests. Case closed. Bottom line. That's it. So let's stop with this. Not only do we have to stop with this, but you can see that Obama and Clinton and the other neoliberals are using veterans and Muslims to full effect during this election cycle. We're being used as tools and pawns in a game so much bigger than us. And yet these identities, oh, if you're a veteran, you serve this country, you know, you have a special say-so and this and that. And, oh, if you're a Muslim and uh, your son is in the military killing other Muslims for no good reason, then he's a hero. No, he's not a hero. Should we respect the family because their son died? Of course, for Christ's sake. We don't have to say, no one has to attack the family or anything like this. But these people are being used. Whether or not they know they're being used is a different question, but that doesn't hide the fact that they are, that doesn't uh, negate the fact that they are being used. And so are the veterans who pop up at the, at the Republican National Convention to protest Trump's hatred. But where were all these veterans over the last eight years when Obama and the Democrats were murdering people all over the world? I haven't heard from too many of them. I know there's some of them out there trying to save public parks, and that's sweet. I know there's some of them out there trying to get veterans benefits, and that's great. I know there's some of them out there trying to help veterans get uh, homeless veterans get homes, and that's all. that's all fine and dandy. But you know who doesn't have any of that shit? The Libyans, the Afghans, the Iraqis, and we can go down the list. The Syrians, they don't have any of that. They don't have hundreds and thousands of groups out there trying to make sure that they have health care or that they have schools to go to. We've got so many groups in this nation devoted to helping veterans that if you at one time had decent politics or if you still have decent politics and you found yourself protesting Trump or talking crap about Trump or you know, criticizing everything Donald Trump does, but you haven't had time to criticize Clinton and Obama's foreign policy over the last eight years, I have no respect for you. No one's going to listen to you. And if you're wondering why your groups continue to dwindle, if you're wondering why your groups continue to lose power, if you're wondering why very few people pay attention to what you're doing, that's why. Namely, because you're unprincipled. People, if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's that people will respect people who are principled. Now, whether or not they agree with those positions, with those principled positions, is another matter. But most people will actually respect you if you remain principled in your politics. So no one can come to me and say, Vince, where were you for the last eight years? No, I'm, I, I, unfortunately, I'm part of a very small group of commentators, writers, uh, analysts, activists in the United States who has openly and routinely and regularly criticized the Democrats and Obama and has held their feet to the fire as much as I can with my limited influence for their crazy and murderous foreign policy decisions. There's not too many people out there who have.
Well, Obama has gotten a huge pass on his disastrous foreign policy. He has gotten a big pass. Clinton isn't going to be so lucky if or when she takes office. But they're using these veteran identities and these Muslim identities to say, oh, as a Muslim American, I believe in the Constitution and I came here for freedom and this is the greatest country in the world. You see, folks, immigrants in many contexts, but particularly in the so-called multicultural liberal context, are used par excellence. This is the definition of this identity politics par excellence right now. This Khan family as Muslim Americans who have a son who is a veteran who was killed in Iraq. It's perfect. And this is how smart the neoliberals are. This is how smart Clinton and them are. They understand how this works. They understand that they can simultaneously feed into this nationalism but it doesn't have to be so rabid and it doesn't have to be as unhinged as Trump's version. But they still feed into this narrative, this idea that the United States is exceptional, this idea that the United States is the only place on the planet where the Khan family could come and live in safety. And this idea that veterans are heroes. I'm sorry, folks, but again, you can't be a hero if you're fighting for the most destructive force on the face of the planet, to paraphrase Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You can't. No one who fought in Vietnam is a hero. No one who helped destroy Various countries throughout Latin America, whether that be in the CIA, the State Department, the Department of Defense, the military, or so on, is a hero. You are a pawn. You were used the same way military veterans have been used in this country from day one. So snap out of it. The sooner you come to that realization, the better off you'll be. better off this country will be. But we have to reject this, this idea that veterans and Muslim American immigrants hold a special place in society. They don't at all. In fact, they're going to be used to reinforce the very worst of American society. And we'll see how that plays out in the future. I wanted to also mention lead poisoning in East Chicago. People pay attention. I would say one of the best Facebook pages to go to social media pages would be Thomas Frank. I say check out his work. Check out his comments and he'll post uh, events and so on. There's an article today in Northwest Indiana Times, relocation, contaminated soil, worries, EC residents. We're talking about thousands of people being evacuated and permanently moved from the West Calumet housing project or the housing complex. Unbelievable. Of course, another community, more citizens, black and brown, being not only pushed to the margins, but being poisoned day in and day out. City, the EPA, and the corporations and the steel mills and the manufacturing plants that, of course, are responsible for this could care less. 
So check out this article, Relocation, Contaminated Soil Worries EC Residents, and also get on social media and check out Thomas Frank's articles and links to events if you're interested in that topic. What else did I promise you we'd talk about today? There are uprisings in Naples, Italy. This is interesting for many reasons. Of course, in the South, this is a nation that has been ravaged by austerity. As we've talked about in previous programs, the, the pigs, nations, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain have been disproportionately affected in the post-2008 world, post-financial collapse, in this austerity regime, in this austerity era. This article is from Roar Magazine, one of my favorites, an article I've written for, or a magazine I've written for in the past. This article is called Naples Rising, Rebel Youth Movement's Buzz in the Old City, written by Jasper Finkedly and Moro Pinto. So make sure to check this out. It's in Roar Magazine, Naples Rising, Rebel Youth Movement's Buzz in the Old City. I also promised that I would talk about water aquifers. And I was going, <laughs> so I was going to go to this National Geographic article that I pulled up. And now it's telling me that <laughs> I don't know how I read it earlier. So this is so weird. But I guess this is part of the issue, huh, with free content. So this says that the National Geographic magazine content is only available to subscribing members. I'm obviously not a member. Uh, yeah. Somehow I read this article earlier. I don't know if you'll be able to go read it. I posted it on my Facebook page, so check it out on the Facebook page. You can just go to Vincent Emanuele on Facebook. Send me a friend request, or I think it turns you into a follower, whatever that means. So then you get the post. Nonetheless, yeah, I tried to post it earlier, I, some reason it simply won't come up but nonetheless essentially what we're what it's saying is that all of the of like the vast majority of the world's water aquifers are running out so not you know not to add this to your list of of uh positive news <laughs> oh goodness yeah to list this to your I'm sure everyone is, you know, you get so many articles like this anymore. Let's see here. There's a part now, it's coming up. There we go. So I'll read you a little excerpt from this because I think this is this is a very interesting article. So again, what happens to the U.S.? I'll, well, I'll read you the, the uh, headline after. So for an expanding nation in the 1800s, the high plains didn't hold much promise. The weather, blizzards, tornadoes, and heat waves could kill. When it rained, it often rained all at once, triggering flash floods. By 1820, the territories that became Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma had been condemned on maps as the Great American Desert. But the cruelest assessment came from the, the diarist of the U.S. Army, survey expedition, quote, we do not hesitate in giving the opinion that it is almost hopefully unfit for cultivation and, of course, uninhabitable by a people depending on agriculture for their subsistence. Homesteaders moved west anyway, lured by cheap land and railroad promotional schemes that played down climat climat climactic shortcomings 
New arrivals in Plainview, Texas, stepped out of the train depot and gazed upon sailboats on Lake Plainview. The lake lasted five years until the pump broke on the well that kept it full. The great plow-up followed as sodbusters converted grassland into wheat fields and put their faith in the mistaken theory that rain follows the plow. One of the misconceptions about the Dust Bowl is that it could have been prevented if farmers had known what lay beneath their feet. They did. Most farms had, had shallow wells with windmill-driven pumps. What Plains residents lacked was the ability to drill deep enough and the horsepower to bring water to the surface in the volumes needed to irrigate more than a family farm. It took rural electrification and the diesel-powered centrifugal pump to launch large-scale pumping in the 1950s. After that, the invention of the center pivot sprinkler made agriculture. Irrigation acres on the plains increased from 2.1 million in 1949 to 15.5 million in 2005. The change recolored dry earth into thousands of lush green crop circles that can be seen from space. Ogala water made Kansas a leading producer of wheat. Ethanol production and the consolidation of beef feedlots in southwest Kansas and the Texas panhandle made corn king. The world's largest contiguous cotton-producing land surrounds Lubbock thanks to Ogala water. Large-scale hog processing plants and dairies moved into Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Cheese factories followed the dairies. One of North America's largest cheese plants, cheese plants is outside Clovis, New Mexico, on the aquifer's western edge. When I, when I visited, it was undergoing a $140 million expansion to become the world's largest cheese factory. Quote, people can fairly argue there is too much development, says Nate Jenkins, the assistant manager of the Upper Republican Natural Resources District in Imperial, Nebraska. It was all legally developed, and it's tough to undo. You can't move the clock back. Check out the rest of the article at National Geographic. Again, the title is, What Happens to the U.S. Midwest When the Water's Gone? The Ogala Aquifer Turned the Region into America's Breadbasket. Now it and a way of life are being drained away. And an article that my friend... Sergio Corgan sent me from TakePart.com, the unseen extinction wiping out the world's wildlife. Researchers find that species we ignore, such as snails, are disappearing at a rapid pace, a sign that a mass extinction is upon us. John R. Platt covers the environment, technology, philanthropy, and more for Scientific American, Conservation, Lion, and other pump publications. For years now, Conservationists have warned that Earth is in the middle of the sixth great extinction, with dozens of species going extinct every day, owing to habitat loss, pollution, climate change, and other factors. But here's even worse news. That may be just the tip of the iceberg. According to new research, previous estimates may seriously underestimate the number of species that we're losing. A paper published in the Proceedings of the Natural Academy of Sciences suggests that we may have already lost 130,000 species, or a staggering 7% of the world's total biodiversity. How could we have lost so many species without noticing? It's simple. The authors say most of these extinctions are not big. 
noticeable creatures such as rhinos or tigers. Instead, they're tiny insects and other intervertebrates that don't get much attention. These, these species tend to have very small ranges with specific habitat needs and aren't often well studied. Of the estimated 1.4 billion, I'm sorry, 1.4 million invertebrates worldwide, fewer than 16,000 have been evaluated for their extinction risk by the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List. Of that number, nearly a third are listed as data deficient, meaning we don't know enough about them to even say if they're at risk. By contrast, every single bird species appears on the red list. Of the more than 15,000 birds and mammals listed, fewer than 6% are ranked as data deficient. So, why should you care? The authors of the new study say that focusing on larger, more easily studied species means we're not getting a true picture of the extent of the sixth great extinction. Thus, we may be losing species that could be important to human health even before we discover them. Snails and other invertebrates form an important part of the food web for all manner of animals, so their extinctions can have a cascading effect on biodiversity. To close that knowledge gap, the researchers took a random sampling of 200 land snail species around the world and then looked at the scientific record to see what we know about them. They didn't find much. Snails haven't been studied in some parts of the globe for decades, and some entire groups have never been studied at all. The researchers write that a full 84.5% of their 200 random species would be considered data deficient if they were added to the red list today. Even that doesn't tell the full picture. Of the 200 species remaining, 79 have not been observed in more than five decades. One example was a Hawaiian species. We do know that other species are also in danger. But all this information, that might not be enough to stop the, great, the sixth great extinction anytime soon, but it might help us understand it and start to take action. Check out this article at TakePart.com, The Unseen Extinction Wiping Out the World's Wildlife. Well, folks, we're out of time. I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure as always. We'll see what we have on st in store for next week. Check out the Facebook page at Vincent Emanuele and check out the writings. You could just Google it. And we'll be back with you next week. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I'm your host. This is the Progressive Radio Network.